Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Happy National Poetry Day in the UK. Though if you, like I suppose 90% of our audience, are listening at a later date, then just hello. The LPP series began in the first week of October 2014, so it's now three years old. Which is a bit wild. The series now has 107 episodes from seven countries, including 13 hosts and over 200 poets appearing as interview guests or reading a poem or two. Thank you to everyone that has listened and contributed, but especially to my wife Lizzie, who has done the most to help the series reach its third birthday. And like most three-year-olds, it's really cute, but mainly just refuses to do what I say. Today's episode is a collection of readings by some really great poets. Some have been guests already on the podcast, and hopefully those that haven't will be appearing for a chat very soon. So coming up, we've got poems from Rishi Dastidar, Mary Jean Chan, Holly Caulfield Carr, Lizzie Turner reading a poem by Scott Laudati, Thomas Darby and Karani Baroka. Though before that starts I wanted to read something from a couple of pamphlets that I've really enjoyed this year and I'll be back at the end with the second poem. First up I'll be reading from Susanna Dickey's I Had Some Very Slight Concerns which is out through The Lifeboat who are based in Belfast. I really recommend you check out both Susanna's writing and The Lifeboat's collection of prints. Milk. I trawl for scraps of you, the bits left behind like dandruff, crumbs or paper clips. Things you've written, things that have been written about you, things that have been written about an event you attended. Even a review written two years later, written by a stranger, seems dented by you. As if your attendance, a tiny stone painted with your image, has been set on every marquee and every word, and they have been weighed down, spread out, made soft like soft cheese with pebble-shaped simulacrums. When I exhaust these avenues, I expand my quadrat and throw it a little further. It's not even really a quadrat anymore, it's a misshapen fishnet blob and it hauls in more and more material with increasing irrelevance. But I cling to all of it. Have you ever tried to draw a grid freehand? One square is always monstrous, a whole lifetime, a whole ecosystem contained inside. Another struggles to accommodate even a hollowed out snail shell that isn't fit to be lived in. I read the receipts of a man who went to school with you. He publishes them online under the guise of found word poems, but they are not found word poems, they're just receipts. I found this cutlass and decided to use it as a cutlass, as opposed to... I found this cutlass and refashioned it into a hat and now nobody can bear to stand too close to me. I call this immediate transference and my therapist tells me I'm using the phrase immediate transference wrong. When I look it up, it's satisfying to apply it to my own feelings. I found this cutlass, and despite having had no prior history of libidinal thoughts towards swashbuckling weaponry, I now find myself impossibly unconsciously grasping the very soul of this cutlass. I wonder if the receipts will act as a time capsule, and in 20 years I might revisit them and think how did we exist before milk was pasteurised to the point of ubiquity before it became a fine dust like that on moth wings to be put on cured meats, door hinges, 
my body after a shower. You slide your hands under my towel and knead my skin and make me into something new. The sole purpose milk I've grown up with will seem laughably primitive, which I suppose is similar to how I feel about how I felt before I met you. It's a lot better when Susie reads it. As always, if you want to know more about what we're up to with the podcast, you can find us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter, Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or over at our website, www.lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also find a transcript of this episode and many others from the series. If you like what we do, then please support us by telling your friends, colleagues, family, parcel force delivery person about us. It really helps us and is the best form of advertising for a podcast. Some of the following poems contain what some consider to be rude language, so please bear that in mind if you're listening with small children or conservative politicians. I've made an effort to put the ruder poems towards the end of the episode, but don't really want to start bleeping people's poems. You get me? Happy National Poetry Day. Here's Rishi Dastadar. I'm Rishi Dastadar. Um, sitting on a bench in Kennington Park on a slightly grey but thankfully dry afternoon. I have a poem from Ticker Tape in front of me which I think speaks to freedom, which is the theme of this year's National Poetry Day. Um, it might not be the most positive avocation of freedom ever, but it gives you a sense of the tension that is inherent within the word. It's called Contour. In every map is a kind of trance, a whisper that insists geography is destiny, no matter what you say. Remember the bridges of Königsberg, the whisper continues. That was an unsolvable problem, and so is your desire to keep moving, to lose yourself in whatever new topography you can conjure with the spin of a compass, as if it's a roulette wheel rather than a divining rod that keeps reminding you, he who changes the sky above him without changing his soul, changes nothing. My name is Mary Jean Chan. I'm a poet from Hong Kong, and I'll have my debut pamphlet coming out next spring with Ignition Press, which is a new press founded by Oxford Brooks Poetry Centre. So I'll be reading two poems today. The first one is called Conversation with Fantasy Mother. Dear Fantasy Mother, thank you for taking my coming out as calmly as a pond accepts a stone flung suddenly into its depths. You sieved my tears, added an egg, and baked a beautiful cake. You said, let us celebrate, for today you are reborn as my beloved. The candles gleamed, and the icing was the color of truth, creamy white, speckled with the sweetness of hundreds and thousands. We sat together at the table and ate. Afterwards, I returned to my room and touched all the forbidden parts of myself, felt a kindness I had not known in years. My second poem is called, They Would Have All That. 
To sing the evening home, the lover prepares a pot of lentil stew, her smartphone radiant with messages, imagining her lover's steady hand gripping her phone to navigate towards some notion of home, their flat now a familiar place of worship, their bodies growing close and moving apart with the regularity of heartbeat, morning breath. There the lover is, running to catch a bus she knows will take her somewhere so she can feel once again the sensation of lack, wondering at her lover's motions throughout the flat, how her feet must press on the floor with each step, how the orchid must have stretched itself a few millimeters overnight, how the stew must be whispering on the stove and the table set for dinner. The lovers are gentler with each other now, because they have memorized one another's fears like daily prayer. How too much salt brings back the years of loneliness. How a warm bath may be more necessary than a rough kiss after a day's drought of tenderness. The lovers are gentler because they have grown too knowledgeable to love any other way. How have I hurt you? Such asking becomes routine almost like walking down the aisle of a supermarket at evening. But it is what they do best as lovers. Beyond desire, two clasped bodies holding the heart's ache at bay. Hi, I'm Holly Caulfield-Carr and I'm a poet and artist based in Bristol. And I'm going to be reading Zed. And one thing I want you to know about this poem before I start reading is I often write as if you might be able to see this on the page. So if I'm going to be reading it for your ear, I just want you to think I'm maybe speaking in a high volume. Maybe, maybe I'm writing all in caps. That should be enough, I think. A. This capped peak. This retractable point. Without asking, you take it. Then B will be mine. Rigged brigantine, plump Home winds will be mine. Loose horseshoe of sea lost its tack, its luck spilling down the wall. You can have that. D, your half of the moon. If you want E, I will have F, even though it has lost its bottom shelf. I am kind like that. But let me keep G, this lovely whelk of your ear, this salt water almost boiling. I know neither of us want H, that sneeze, that movable goalpost. Do not say it is mine. We must dispose of the picked bone together. It will be impossible to use after this. Unless you plan to speak in the first person without the first person, who is in any case the last person, the very last person on earth. If I want to, I can keep your cute crowbar, your candy cane. While you were out buying milk for my tea, a hide K, press skip to the start. And I promise to think of you each day, twice, at three, when the clock holds an L to its forehead. And I still sweep from your feet a corona of crinkled light, every M, every N, falling like cut hair. Oh, oh, you have taken the full moon, I will not forgive you. That way you laugh at me now, your head cracked back like that, like a Pez dispenser choking on a tablet, like a cutlass singing through the air. 
you return Q, which is a cancelled moon. Ah, who is as loyal to you as a terrier growls at the question. We both ask the question at the same time, which cancels the question. Or let me put it like this. One question lies directly over the body of the other until it disappears. Tet, besh, fine, mess. Like this, like this, like s, like this. The s hangs between us, like a cord cut, springing back up. You brandish the deflated hammer of your tea, its wretched squeak. You who glisten like a cold washing up bowl. V is how both of our copies fall open, spines broken in the same place I don't know which to take. I pause at the W, vitiginous thing. This landscape is so expensive and backlit. I paused the first time I had to sign with your initial, not mine, as if some part of me remembers writing the fickle stirrup of the rune and the sound of it when W was pronounced when, meaning either bliss or cyst. Take your pick. I know the X was a gift to treasure. I do. I pack Y, my slingshot, my dowsing rod. And it will be a long year before I find the final N, which I take to be a Z, which I lift suspiciously from the sleeve of my winter coat and do not recognise. Hi, I'm Lizzie Turner and I am going to read Putting the Art Back in Kmart by Scott Laudati from his collection Hawaiian Shirts in the Electric Chair. I chose this poem because... I found this book in uh, the Oxfam bookshop in Belfast and I hadn't heard of him, uh, but really loved the collection, um, particularly this poem. So this is Putting the Art Back in Kmart. When we were young, rocks were the thing to throw. It taught me a lot about glass, sand and soda. Sometimes the rocks would sail through nice and clean and only a small hole the size of a golf ball or a baseball was made like bullets spraying across a stone wall. Other times, the glass would shatter off in huge chunks, like countries falling from a map, and hit the floor. It made the sound of a wave crashing on a dirty beach. I guess the more chemicals, the shittier the glass. Car windows were my favourite, especially the windshield. We dropped boulders from trees, we put rocks into potato guns, we even ran and cannonballed, but the windshield never broke open and nothing ever got through. Instead, these beautiful designs formed, rings over water, a thawing pond, a map of the galaxy. And after we were sweaty and bleeding, we'd look at our abstraction, turned a used car lot into a modern art gallery sometimes. We took pictures. In high school, they made us take art class. We learned a lot about the old masters, and they were good but there always seemed to be some element missing. The mad flash, the knife or the canvas it never got through. The assignment was to be creative. You can do anything that inspires you. So we got canvas and threw paint and pissed on it, dumped our burning cigarettes, someone even jerked off on it, but it was still lame and nothing to be proud of. We took mushrooms to get deeper, and like mushrooms usually do, we went out into the woods. I only remember spider webs big webs, lactating silk like pure fresh squeezed milk. They were so lush I wanted to eat them, so I did. 
I woke up in a hospital two days later with a fever, delirious and covered in huge red bites. No memory, but they told me I had said, the webs look just like broken glass. My friends were inspired. After they called an ambulance, they went to smash a car window and bring the windshield in for our inspiration project. But we weren't nine anymore. Too much Taco Bell and cigarettes will cut fleeing the scene to complying with the law very quickly. Everyone who didn't go to the hospital that night went to jail. Our teacher was fired the next Monday. Her replacement had a psych degree and we spent the rest of the year gluing pasta together. We were all safe after that, but none of us went on to make something anybody would ever stop and look at. So my name is Thomas Darby, and I'm going to read Al Fresco in Waves. Feeling the brunt of wild expectation, we double back and park at the garden centre. We traipse and get lost beyond electric trap fences, over stinger-surrounded stiles, outstare a horse. You go first and take the bag. These yellow-rimmed and grass-bleached ditches are too prickly. Where's my phone? Climb and be crowned king of the pylons on a rackety, rust-moulded throne. Wait here. Just an old woman talking to a walking stick. This way, let's strip. Every angle, each paw, is pink-flicked against the shadow from the wind-played leaves. Your back, sweat, pulls in flat garments, creasing from our weight, our movement, free-roaming into the present. Floating above, among the bird calls and cell towers, the thought, will this now be enough? My name is Kairani Baroka, or Oka, and I have a debut full-length collection of poetry out called Rope. It'll be out um, the first week of October with Nine Arches Press, and it's available for pre-order now, and there will be a launch party with costumes on October 31st that you are all invited to. So I thought I would read some poems from Rope that I have never performed on a podcast before. This first one is called Meteorology. If you don't like puns, you should kindly just shut your ears. One. In summer, I am your purple and soot, my fingers in your mouth, my ear against your supper plate, epidermis mixed with creamed potatoes, Turkish bread. I live here because you said to storm in briefly sands breathing cloud into cracks in wooden beams. I never weather anything because I am told. Two. Hailstorm in the mouth, crockery breaking into repentance, coal fire temp, a feather burning charred against the grate where we dry socks. Your silence speaks fences, also sky. Parse this quiet for me when we fuck, lightning. I am a woman unaccustomed to calm, so like a sudden swallowing it is, cold snap. This is how you pitch my winds like tent poles in the dirt. Hurricane yourself in one place until I will. Mathematical artistry make the arcs of cosine sine. Precipitation tries and fails to drop. Loquaciousness thundering in other lives, you become mute lover. With all this grasping soundless, are you saying thank you? 
Three, tangent. Grimis is the Indonesian word for light rainfall, sounds encapsulated. Grit, porridgey, granular drops, a sudden squall. Four, Galileo himself could not predict weather by telescope. You give me a brass miniature that magnifies three times over. The less soupy the fog, the clearer. Ave Marias make bluebell-colored echoes from the church to the side. In these skies, silver linings desecrated by pigeons, shits and giggles. Our ideas of what constitutes extreme humidity split, deep and opposed, too much or not nearly sufficient for the required warm trough of sweat. Changes in the chill like a metronome, too pacing, outpacing, changes in the pulse, breathing so harshly through our chest that the rest of us is drought. Five, deluge. Well, that was the first, that was the podcast debut of Meteorology. This one is called Pineapple. It was first published on the online journal Transom. Henceforth, fruit may never stand for woman as a matter of course, automatic simulacrum, representing desiccation and death, its husk shrivels seeds, invariably consumed by the fairly indiscriminate, pulped, ground, chopped, tossed, force-fed syrup. This pineapple on the canvas may only be a woman when laid right against an abstract background and cleaved by itself alone, mane, a forest, feral, fecund, imposing, monolithic, millennia apart from the tales our grandmothers tell us of Nanas's curse of vaginal ill health when eaten, yet retaining all the menace of such myth, a pox on you and your vaginas, it could say. But it loves the pith of a woman, and would never strike fear in her heart, like the murder of armored, segmented flesh, fork gone runny with sweet yellow juice. For a little bit of context, that was in response to a painting of a pineapple a colleague did. When I was little, I never drank pineapple juice because I heard that it would give you a lot of vaginal discharge. So, <laughs> happy National Poetry Day! Hello there. You made it. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far. This episode was a pleasure to record and... With recently relocating from Bristol to London, it seemed to make sense that half of the recordings would be made back down in London and the other half here in the southwest. I've got to finish off with a poem by a very good friend of mine and a fantastically talented writer, Sean Wai Kyung. I remembered the other day that after I read a poem in public for the first time at Poetry Unplugged in London three and a half years ago, Sean was the first person that came and spoke to me. The fact makes it all the more shocking that he was so happy for me to read one of his poems in this episode. Sean was the winner of the inaugural open pamphlet competition held by the Rialto, and You Are Mistaken was published this summer, and is something that you need to go and buy. On the back of the pamphlet, competition judge Hannah Lowe says, I love these poems for their simultaneous sense of puzzlement and wisdom about the world and specifically the things Sean Wai Kyung has to say about ethnicity, mixedness and ancestry. I also think he's hilarious. Though I would never say that to his face.
on the contents page of You Are Mistaken, this poem is listed as being called Over Skype, though I think it is actually untitled. Over Skype, you tell me you are much happier now you aren't in Norwich and I feel this shooting pain somewhere because I'm in Norwich without you. I feel less grounded, it's like there's less structure somehow, as if the time we spent together when you were here was a perfectly dimension cube and now it's more like fragments of varying shapes and sizes and I can't help but wish you were here now. Even though I'm happy that you are happy now and you ask me how I'm finding Norwich now and I launch into this story about some guy with an air pistol who I saw walking down my street. He was shooting at streetlights and from my position by the third floor window of my bedsit he looked kind of sad. And it reminded me of the time I got attacked by a crow, I felt its claws on my head and I turned to look at it and it was wearing this frantic bashful expression as if to say, I don't know why I'm doing this and I don't know why I'm here but at least we are both defining ourselves in some sort of way. Sure, Mike, you. Or rather, it was me reading Sean Mike Young's poem. I tried to do my best there to not do an impression of Sean. I've seen him read so many times. Um, this idea of uh, how much we want to copy people we admire, whether it's their writing or their performance, will probably come up a bit more in the podcast at some point in the future. Until that point, enjoy yourselves. Bye.